Well, there's an important adage for us to embrace as Christians. What is it? Well, it is, keep the main thing the main thing. Right before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave us, the church, the main thing when he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Grace Presbyterian Church, we are the church, uh, the body of Christ. And Jesus commands to those first disciples, it's a command to us today as well. It cannot be stressed enough that we have a calling to be disciples who make disciples. This is the main thing. And at Grace Church, we strive to keep the main thing the main thing. In the passage we're about to read, we see Jesus discipling those first disciples. And as we read we, and as we study, I want us to see just how wonderful of a disciple maker Jesus is, as well as how blessed it is to be a disciple. Our text is perhaps a familiar one. It's Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32, going to verse 45. Um, it's in your pew Bibles. I don't have the page number. Oh, yeah, I do. Page 846. How's that? 846. Here we go. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking? Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy as your children to want to 
point our fingers at other children and say, look at them, they're really messed up. But the truth is, we need this. For in, for in James and John and the other disciples, we see ourselves. But we also see Jesus who is patient and kind and, and loving and purposeful in all that he does. So help us to take to heart by your spirit what you will us to have. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, today's sermon is titled, The Beauty of Discipleship, not the plan of discipleship or the necessity or the way of discipleship. Those are all important things. Our title is The Beauty of Discipleship. Discipleship is beautiful because beauty is Jesus's goal for his bride, the church. You know this, don't you? In Ephesians chapter 5, we read about how earthly marriage is really just kind of a metaphor for the relationship between the church, the bride of Christ, and Christ, our bridegroom. There we read, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's our Lord's intention for us. Jesus loves his church. That's us. He gave his life for us. Why? So that he might sanctify us. That is, make us beautiful through what? Through our washing with the word of God. Why? So that he might present the church, us, to himself one day in splendor, without wrinkle or blemish. My friends, understand this. Jesus' end goal for us isn't just forgiveness of sins, as great as that is, but no. His end goal is absolute cleansing and transformation of his people so that we are beautiful in his presence. Now, you may ask yourself, or you may ask, well, if this is Jesus' goal for the church, why does the church look all that not so much beautiful? <laughs> I don't know if that was proper English. Why is there so much petty rivalry and infighting amongst Christians? Why are so many Christians stuck on their own dreams of glory? Why is it that the whole church seems to be complacent when it comes to spiritual maturity? Why is it that Christians are so slow to take up their crosses daily and willingly enter into suffer as they follow after Christ? Why is it so many Christians ask Jesus to help them to achieve selfish ambitions for themselves in life? Why do so many Christians live why don't Christians live greater life of service towards others? These are great questions to ask. And guess what? Each one of these issues comes to light in the passage we just read. Jesus must address his disciples' petty rivalry, infighting, selfish dreams of glory, lack of servants' hearts, etc., etc. Now, this morning, we're going to approach our text a little differently. We're going to get out of the typical Presbyterian. I'm going to tell you the big idea and then give you three main points, all right? So we're, um, we're not going to do that this morning. What we're going to do, though, is we're going to simply move through the narrative, this story, and make some observations and application. And throughout our time, uh, I want to ask you to try to see yourselves in the lives of those first disciples so that we can see at least a few things. One, how ignorant and foolish and slow they are, and we are which means we really need discipleship. And two, let us look at the love and patience of Jesus towards his disciples as he makes them more and more beautiful through discipleship. Let's begin with verse 32. 
and they were on the road going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. So where were they? They were in Jericho. They're on their way, making this big journey to Jerusalem. They got to Jericho. Now they're on their way out of Jericho. Jerusalem is only 20 miles away. It says that they were going up to Jerusalem. Um, why is that? Because Jerusalem is at is 3,500 feet in elevation higher than Jericho. 20 miles, 3,500 feet. Picture that, the road winding up, kind of like in that image of that banner we just had of, of the roads going up in that Isaiah um, sermon series. The roads were packed with people. Why? Because it was the Passover feast. It was approaching. The crowds were moving towards Jerusalem. There was amazement, yes, and there was fear for those who followed. I think being in the presence of divinity has, creates a sense of awe and fear. But doesn't Luke also tell us that Jesus had a real serious look on his face as he knew what was awaiting him in Jerusalem? But then Jesus stopped to tie his Converse All-Stars and take a sip of Gatorade. And he pulled the 12 out of the crowds, and he spoke only to them. Taking the 12 again, he began, in verse 32, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days, he will rise. Now, this marks the third time in Mark's gospel that he's clearly told his disciples what's going to happen. He doesn't mince any words. He's going to die, brutally die, and rise again. And I hope you notice, Jesus willingly walks up that hill to the hell that awaits him. Now, having just said that, Having just told his disciples that, what comes next is both utter lunacy and kind of to be expected. What we might like to have read was this. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, consoled Jesus and promised to walk with him and suffer with him. Nope. Not even close. Instead of they engaged in childish arm-twisting, Verse 35, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left, in your glory. James and John asked to sit on Jesus' right and left hand. Kind of, they want, one wants to be vice president, the other secretary of state. But Jesus had just said he was going to suffer and die and rise. And it's like they just don't get it. One commentator writes, either Jesus' words about his suffering whistle right by them, or they must hope that his travail will only be a temporary setback, quickly reversed. Christians, it's true, right? We can act in the same way. We look at earthly opportunities for glory that are ahead of us, and we say, Jesus, I want you to do whatever I ask of you. Jesus, I'm willing to put up with some small inconveniences so long as it works out well for me in the end. We can approach Jesus as the Son of Man, as if he is some sort of good luck charm, as if in Led Zeppelin style, he is our butler and the maid and the servantry. 
live in love and made this song. Do you see this in your own life? I do. Sadly, I do. Now notice how patient our Lord is. Verse 36, he asks, what do you want me to do for you? If your Bibles are open, turn to the very next story in Mark's gospel. It's there for a reason. One, because it happened right as they're going to Jerusalem. But it's a story of blindness and seeing. The disciples can't see, but here's blind Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus is told that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He doesn't know. He just hears a rush, right? What is this? You know, who's coming? It's Jesus of Nazareth. And in verse 47, he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You know, the crowds, they want to push him away. But Jesus calls him to himself. And now marvel at the question Jesus asks in verse 51. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Let me recover my sight, he replies. And Jesus healed him and said, go your way. Your faith has made you well. It's the very same question Jesus asked James and John. What do you want me to do? Jesus is the consummate servant. Jesus' will is to do for others which means what? He wants us to ask of him. Jesus delights to hear your requests. But yeah, they must kind of align with his kingdom priorities. (laughs) James and John asked for status and fame, and blind Bartimaeus asked for mercy and faith and the healing which is promised in the kingdom to come, and he gets it. You know, I think we're, Kind of like that too. Like James and John, they think they're ready for Jesus. You know, most who have been Christians for a few years tend to believe themselves to be more mature than they really are. Guilty. Like the disciples, they think we are already fit for the kingdom. David Garland writes, Looking at James and John is like looking in the mirror. We can see our own selfishness. And Mark, the author, hopes that we can see how foolish we look. This is the point in the sermon when you stop thinking about this person sitting near you and you start thinking about yourself. (laughs) I need this. This means that that like James and John, um, we're blind to our own weaknesses, right? And so if you're here today and you think you don't need discipleship, then guess what? The fact that you do not think you need discipleship means what? (laughs) You need it. See, mature Christians come to know that they still have so far to go and to grow to become more beautiful. And mature Christians, they, they know that they cannot become who Christ is calling them to be apart from discipleship. Not just one hour on a Sunday. It's far more than that. Listen, Jesus was always discipling his disciples. He always kept the main thing, the main thing. So Jesus patiently confronts James and John's spiritual immaturity. He's been with them three years. These are the same two guys that were fishing on a boat. He says, follow me and I'll what? Make you fishers of men. Now it's three years later and they still got a lot to learn. 
In verse 38, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking, which is a nice way of saying you're ignorant. <laughs> you know, to be ignorant isn't necessarily a bad thing. I'm completely ignorant when it comes to rocket propulsion, right? But the disciples are ignorant of something they shouldn't be. Continuing on in verse 38, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism of which I'm baptized? He's not talking about baptism with water. He's talking about, well, we'll see. Jesus, the, he says, are you able to drink my cup and be baptized like me? The correct answer is what? No. <laughs> no, we're sorry. Sorry we bothered you, Jesus. That was really stupid what we just did. My gosh. No. The disciples enthusiastically shout out, we are able. To which Jesus says in verse 39, the cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I'm baptized you will be baptized, but to sit on my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. By the Father, obviously. The disciples asked to sit on the right and left when Jesus comes into the glory. Now, let me ask you, when did Jesus' glory shine the most on earth? Was it not the, the day he hung on the cross? It was when he drank for us the cup of God's wrath and was deluged in a baptism of our judgment for our sin, and he hung on a cross for it. And who was on his right and on his left when he came in his glory? Two criminals, one on his right, one on his left. The disciples had yet to grasp the magnitude of Jesus' messiahship, and his kingdom. In a few weeks, though, they would come to more fully understand, but for now, they suffer from a problem we too can suffer from, the failure to grasp the enormity of Jesus' mission and therefore our mission. But once he went to the cross and later rose from the grave, then everything changed for the disciples. They will eventually understand that being a follower of Christ does not lead to an easier life, but in many ways, a harder life as you live for Christ and his kingdom. Jesus tells James and John that they will drink the cup and be baptized in a way similar to Jesus. They cannot suffer for the sins of others the same way Jesus did, but they will suffer similarly, and so do all who follow after Christ. Jesus is saying to them and to us, you will suffer. How much? Only the Father knows. He is sovereign over how much we endure for the sake of his kingdom. On a side note, you can read in the book of Acts, James was the first disciple to die. King Herod beheaded him soon after the church was founded. He didn't last very long. His brother John, he was the longest living disciple. He passed away years later, all alone imprisoned on the island of Patmos. We modern Christians tend to want Jesus, but not the way of Jesus. Discipleship changes that for us. And this becomes more evident as the story unfolds. Did you see what happened? The other disciples get wind of it. You can just kind of see this coming. And, and it infuriates them, and not for a good reason. Verse 40, 41 says, And when the ten heard it, they became indignant at James and John. One commentator writes, The disciples would rather bear a grudge than a cross. It seems they were angered because they had gotten beaten to the punch. 
not the punch bowl. And, and so they behave with petty conflict. But Jesus, what? Was always discipling his disciples. And notice again how patient Jesus is. Again, he takes them aside. Um, not in, he doesn't rebuke them in front of everybody else in the crowd. And he takes them aside to open their hearts, to open their eyes to a lesson that they need to learn and they need to learn fast. Jesus sets before them something they all knew well, something we all know well. It is a pattern of grace, of greatness that this world that we live in pursues. Verse 42, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. You know. Finally, Jesus says, finally there's something that you know that you're not ignorant of. But it's not the best thing to know. Jesus says, you know how the world works. You, you, this attitude that you have, where did you learn it? Where does it come from? It's all around you, Jesus says. And it's true. This was how the rulers operated in Jesus' day. Ancient rulers were ambitious. They were self-promoting. They were confident, arrogant, self-exalting, dictatorial, domineering. And when they came into power, they lorded over others. They kept everyone in their place. They demanded obedience. They punished rebellion. To get to this place, they climbed over the top of others. And now they demand that those that they stepped upon on the way up must serve them and honor them and respect them. This is how the Romans were, Caesar and Pontius Pilate. This is how the Jewish leaders were, Herod and Caiaphas. And this is the way it remains to this very day. The question is, do you see that around you? And do you see it in you? We buy into the ways of the world. We believe if I'm going to be great, then I must look out for number one first. And we grab and we claw and we trample and we make excuses. Thankfully, Jesus took the time to open his disciples' eyes and our eyes to the true greatness that, that he and his kingdom is all about. What he does is he flips the ways of the world on their head. What does he say? Verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever will be great among you must be your servant. Jesus wants us to understand greatness differently. Jesus is saying that, he's saying that we have greatness upside down. Those who are to be great among you are to be those who are servants in your midst. But then Jesus builds upon greatness, and he takes us up a whole nother level. Verse 44, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. He moves from great in the kingdom to first. Many can be great, very few can be first. Jesus says that among his followers, whoever would be seen as first are those who have become slave of all. Now remember, slavery in Jesus' day is far different from the slavery that took place here in America. It wasn't based on race. Many people actually sold themselves into slavery. It was a way of guaranteeing work and food and pay. In ancient Roman Empire days, most slaves would actually purchase their own freedom by their age of 30. But being a slave was different from being a servant. A servant did a job. They served a role. Slaves were owned. <laughs> they were controlled. Jesus is saying, those who are to be esteemed among you will be those who completely bind themselves to those whom they serve. Now notice another important point. Jesus doesn't say, 
those who are, are great serve more than others, did he? No, what does he say? Those who are great are servants. Think about it. There's a huge difference between those who at times choose to serve and those who are servants. Richard Foster's words help us see the difference. He writes, right here we must see the difference between choosing to serve and choosing to be a servant. When we choose to serve, we're still in charge. We decide whom we will serve and when we will serve. And if we're in charge, we will worry a great deal about everyone stepping on us, that is, taking charge over us. But when we choose to be a servant, we give up the right to be in charge. There is great freedom in this. If we voluntarily choose to be taken advantage of, then we cannot be manipulated. When we choose to be a servant, we surrender the right to decide who and when we will serve. We become available and vulnerable. Pastor Harvey Turner once tweeted this. It's true. We love the idea of serving until someone treats us like a servant. <laughs> right? Now let me ask you, are you a person who at times chooses to serve, or are you a servant? We tend to serve so long as we can call the shots. We will serve as so long as we're noticed, so long as we get next week off, so long as we find it worthwhile to us, so long as it's part of our master plan, so long as the person I'm serving appreciates me. Tell me, when we're serving this way, are we really serving? And who are we really serving? Now, Jesus isn't done with this lesson. In verse 45, Jesus takes us to an entirely different plane of greatness, a place you and I cannot go, but by God's grace, Jesus, well, he'll take you there. Verse 45 is one of the most poignant verses in all of Scripture. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Son of Man was an ambiguous term Jesus used to refer to himself. Jesus is saying that unlike every other ruler on this earth, he did not come to be served, but to serve by giving his life. Amazing, right? Now, let me show you the structure. Those who are great among you, servants. First, even lower, slave. Son of man, God's own son. He serves the world to the point of giving his life. Do you see the visual? It's upside down to the way the world works, right? Great servant, first slave, son of God, gives his all. Isn't it wonderful that our Lord doesn't say, go be great. I'm going to watch you. I'm not going to do it myself. No. He models true greatness for us. The reason why his disciples couldn't see Jesus properly is because Jesus is unlike any leader who has ever lived. Who would have thought that God would enter into human form and suffer and die so that many could be saved? Who would have thought of that? 
Here Jesus tells us why he went to the cross, to pay a ransom, to redeem us from our sin. Interesting note, in those days, when someone ransomed you, you now belong to them. So to us, Christ has set us free, but not to sit on our own thrones and to claw our way to the top of our own kingdoms or to use Jesus simply to get a little bit more out of our lives. He has set us free to serve him and to serve others so that the kingdom of God's gracious rule and reign may grow. And so Jesus doesn't just model for us greatness. He is our greatness. You and I can never do what Jesus did. Our lives cannot purchase the souls of others. And because Jesus gave his life for us, we give our lives in service for him. And we come to see the beauty of his discipleship. And we become disciples who make disciples. In our time this morning, I hope we've seen just how much we need to be discipled. We're slow, we're blind, we have earthly ambitions. We think we're ready when we're not, right? We see in this passage our need, but we also see how wonderful a disciple maker Jesus is. He is patient with us, gracious with us. He doesn't lower his standards though, right? He doesn't say that any of his followers are exempt from being disciples. He make disciples. And so, Grace Church, if we are to be faithful to our call from Jesus, we must keep the main thing the main thing. We are to be, dis be disciples who make disciples. So, Grace Church, let us, let us be a people who receive the grace of God, but not in vain. As Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, Remember these words? We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Seems like kind of an odd statement, right? To receive grace in vain. So we kind of wonder, how can we receive God's grace in vain? Doesn't God's grace compensate even for our half-hearted responses to God, right? How then can we receive God's grace in vain? I like what Ray Ortland Jr. writes. Listen, he says, because God's grace not only accepts us, it also transforms us, beautifies us. But, listen, if all we want out of God is acceptance without transformation, we are receiving his grace in vain, and our Christianity is worthless. Grace Church, let us not receive God's grace in vain, let us not seek acceptance without transformation, but rather let us receive God's grace as we also seek his transforming work in us. And so let us commit afresh this day to be a church of disciples who makes disciples. Now, some of you are probably likely thinking or saying, I'll gladly be a disciple of Jesus, but... A disciple of Nate Burns or Sally Spanberg? No offense, but they're not Jesus. Well, you'd be right. They're not Jesus. But you'd also be wrong. Recall what I read earlier before Jesus ascended to heaven. Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's discipleship. And behold, 
I am with you always to the end of the age. I hope you're able to connect the dots, right? Jesus, his promise to be with us, he promises this. But what is the context for his promise to be with his people? It's in the context of discipleship. Jesus promises to be with his bride, the church, as his disciples go and make disciples. That's us. So please let it sink in. If you're not in a discipleship group, then in a real and true sense, think it through. If Jesus promises to be present in the midst of this discipleship that that makes us beautiful, if you're not engaged in this process, then in a true and real way, you are missing out on the presence of Jesus in your life, which would be there to make you more and more beautiful as a person. If this is you, please recognize your need for discipleship and pursue being in a grace group. For those of you who have been in a grace group these past two years, you've experienced the presence of Christ in your life in many ways, have you not? Like Tom and Elizabeth Ayers, and we heard from earlier, you too have experienced Jesus' presence in, in the life of your grace group. So listen, press on with joy. Recommit as we begin a new semester here in a few weeks. And let me speak to our Grace Group leaders, you've bitten off a lot to chew. You've found that making disciples is hard and messy at times. Some of your disciples have poor attendance, and at times they just don't do their homework, and they're full of excuses. So know this, Jesus is with you. Take to heart the importance of not being one who serves, but being a servant And know that the Lord is pleased with you. He is pleased with you. Why? Because you're fulfilling this great call to be a disciple who makes disciples. You're doing his great command. You are the means by which his people are becoming more beautiful. Think about that. So persevere with joy. One day the Lord will greet you and he'll say, well done, good and faithful what? Servant. He won't say, well done, good and faithful person who served from time to time. (laughs) No, he'll say, good and faithful servant. So this is a pivotal day for all of us here. Hopefully you've seen the beauty of discipleship. So will you commit to keeping the main thing, the main thing? Will you desire what Jesus desires for all who trust in him to be disciples? who make disciples. Let's pray. Well, this definitely isn't easy. It's hard. We're thankful, though, Jesus. We we sense your presence in our midst today because you promised to be with us to the end of the age. And guess what we're talking about? Discipleship. I ask that you would continue to work in your people Remind those who've been a part of Grace Groups how wonderful it has been for them that they may jump back in with great joy. Call your people here at Grace Church to a deeper walk with you. May may none of us receive your grace in vain. And we long for the day, 5, 10, 15 years from now, when we see all the fruit that you're bearing through your people and in your people. We pray this with confidence in our Savior who is the chief discipler. Amen.